Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. So today's episode, I sit and talk to John James Tufnell of St Agnes and it's great. I'm not just saying it's great because it's my podcast and I'm certainly not saying that my contribution to this conversation is great, but John's is. It's a bit of a heart warmer, this. There's just a lot of honesty and a lot of kind of just, yeah, just honesty about growing up and, you know, and, and not always fitting in. And we talk a lot about metalers and, 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 you know, how he's, you know, progressed from, from that scene and, and, you know, still very much at the core of his, of his beginnings and his, in his love is that. And just to see the journey that he's gone on from there um, has been wonderful. And to talk about the records that have, you know, carried that journey as well uh, was just an absolute delight. You're in for a real treat uh, on today's episode. Um, before we get on with it, just quickly, uh, thank you to Scroobius Pip uh, for uh, being the podfather and being the boss man of the Distraction Pieces Network, which Off The Beaten Track is very proud to be part of. Thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. Um, and thank you to you lot for continuing to to push and, and grow this podcast. This started off, you know, two years ago as a as a little kind of side project to, to my other podcast where I just wanted to try and grab a, you know, a, an occasional chat with people that, that love music and... And, and, and what, you know, had an interesting creative journey and it's become so much more than I ever imagined. And I've been blessed to, you know, sit down with some absolutely wonderful people. And, and that's down to you lot continuing to, to support it and share it and tweet it and send me nice messages and, you know, and recommend guests and, and stuff like that. And, and so thank you. Like, I really do appreciate it. Um, and also, if you know in any way, shape, or form you'd like to um, support the the podcast in another way, then then you can do that over on Patreon. There's no, you know, there's no pressure or you know from me to go and do that. I understand that we're living in very trying times, and uh, but the option is there if you'd like to. You still get your, you know, three or four episodes each week on your Acast, Spotify, and iTunes, and all that for free. But if you'd like some more content, you'd like some video episodes and you'd like to get some radio shows and things like that, then I put up, you know, three or four bits of, uh, bits of content each week over on the Patreon. Uh, and that will cost you about 71p a week. And, uh, and then, yeah, at the end of the month, that, that money goes into the pot to, 
to pay for the production and, and, and bits and pieces. So any help over there is really, really appreciated. Um, but like I say, I totally understand that we're living in very testing times at the moment. So no pressure. And uh, and yeah, and also you get a bucket load of stuff for free. And so yeah, go and go and have a look in the the back catalogue when you finish listening to this episode because there's 250 chats to be uh, to be enjoyed. With yeah, I'm not even going to list them because there's too many now. But um, recent ones have involved the Foo Fighters, um, Chuck D, uh, Motley Crue. So go go and have a rummage and go and see what you like. And uh, yeah, anyway. I think I'm done with all the kind of pre-chat waffle and we can get to the premium waffle now. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track podcast with the wonderful John James Tufnell. Right, I've got to take a quick break in this podcast because I've got some super exciting news. Off The Beat and Track podcast is proud to go into partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. That's right. The Cacao Bar is not a chocolate bar. It's all the best bits of a chocolate bar put into a really exciting new alcoholic range. That's right. Gin, vodka, and a beautiful range of cream liqueurs. So one of the big bonuses of this partnership is obviously I'm super thrilled to have Hotel Chocolat working with us, but they sent me a great big box of this stuff. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. Go and check it out www.hotelchocolat.com or over on the socials at Hotel Chocolat. But yeah, in the coming months, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved with competitions with us, to win bottles of stuff. There's loads of exciting things coming soon and I can't be more happy to say that this podcast is in partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Off the Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Okay, we are recording. How are you doing, John? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Um, well, thanks ever so much for your time today. And before we start talking records, uh, I just want to ask you how you found the last year as <laughs> both John the Human Being and as a you know, as a musician, as a creative? Well, I mean, it's quite hard to separate those two things for for um, us and the band because the the band has been our whole lives for the last four or five years. Um, and as a musician, you know, I've been a musician for 20 years and and everything I do is always focused at that. So I think that has set, meant that I've always seen myself as kind of slightly outside the mainstream run of what's going on so whilst I pay attention to the news things that would affect other friends of mine um you know worrying about house prices worrying about this worrying about that it always just felt like something kind of from a distant land you know um I didn't feel like I was kind of part of society you always feel like you're kind of this sort of external thing you're in a van together you're this kind of it's us against them kind of feel but this situation has meant everyone's in the same boat all together. Everyone's experiencing it. And so it's kind of, in a way, there is one positive in the fact it's allowed me to kind of connect with some old friends and people and stuff and have a familiar, you know, focus on like, how are we doing? How are we coping? Which has been, been good. But the negative um, for us was that as a band, we were really, 
really reaching our stride when this all kicked off. Um, and I know it's very easy to kind of be like, it's just music, it's just a band, it's it's not the end of the world. But as I said, it's our whole life. Um, and everything that we'd work towards and we're really building. And, you know, this is every every penny of our money and every moment of our day is, is has been going going into this so there's nothing else and so when you when things are going well and it's kind of like moving upwards it feels really good um and we'd just been on tour with monster magnet um after a whole year of quite extensive touring anyway and the monster magnet tour was great we we're playing to bigger and bigger audiences getting a really good reception the monster magnet guys were super supportive and then the very last show we did before lockdown was on valentine's day supporting a band called horror which are heroes of mine and kitties um and so to meet them to do a show with them to have a great show just felt great and then we're like right we're ready for whatever's next there's all this coronavirus news but we don't really know how seriously to take it and we had a whole year planned and it just stopped and you know, we were so ramped up energy-wise and feeling like we're really in our stride as a live band. And to have that outlet taken away, we hadn't appreciated how important to our lives, our mental health and our, our general kind of well-being, that outlet um, of the live energy was and the camaraderie of being in each other's company all the time, how important that was. We knew we valued them, but we didn't realise how fundamental they were. Um, and then the other thing is just not having something in the calendar to look forward to. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, we love plans. We love, our favourite thing about being in a band is going, right, we've got this big show coming up. What's the set going to be? What can we rehearse? What can we do to make it better? Every thing we can, everything is focusing towards that point. Um, and at the moment, yeah, there's loads of things we want to do. There's loads of things going to, are going to come up, but when they are, we don't know for sure how, what form they're going to take. We don't know. And that uncertainty, it's just really unfamiliar, disorientating, disorientating place. And I think we share that with everyone really, who's worrying about their jobs, family, when are their kids going to go back to school? All of those things, are we safe? Everything. So, um, it's a great leveller, but it's yeah. levelled us all down to a kind of like place of insecurity and fear. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was really well put as well, John. Um, well, I guess one of the things that we always have as a as a as a guarantee and as a as a blanket and as a healthy distraction uh, and a friend is records. Absolutely. And for track one, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Okay, so I've chosen um, a classic, Enter Sandman by Metallica. Um, I was a little bit uh, uncertain about whether to go with this one, just because the song has become so overplayed. You know, it's like choosing Smells Like Teen Spirit or something like that. It's it's such a staple of the genre. But um, the reason why I've chosen it is there's a story linked to it, and that's the as a kid growing up near Southampton, um, the music scene wasn't, wasn't, didn't feel very apparent to me. I didn't really know what was there. Um, I didn't really go to any gigs. I was just, you know, just a normal kid, like playing guitar, reading magazines, seeing things that were out there. 
And I used to go to a CD and record fair in Southampton Guildhall, which was loads of people like rummaging through boxes, looking for stuff like spending 50 quid on double albums of rare things. But I was always looking for live bootlegs. That was like the thing I wanted um, of bands I liked. And they were really hard to find, you know. On vinyl? No, anything. Tape mostly, because I only had a Walkman really. So I was always looking for the cheapest thing. I had like, you know, I was... 13 14 years old so i only had a few quid in my pocket um and quite a narrow taste in music um i liked things that were loud and still didn't really know what i liked i was just anything that was in metal hammer or kerrang or whatever it was was like if i've read about it in the picture let's call cool, i'll go and try and find it and i can't afford the official things but if i can find some kind of live bootleg or something on on tape then i get it and there was this double album of metallica live just with handwritten stuff it just looked like someone had made it at home and as it turns out it's the it's a taped version of their live ship binge and purge massive deluxe box set they'd released in the beginning of the 90s i didn't know that at all um and i put it on and says this live album and it starts with ecstasy of gold from uh, by ennio morricone from uh, the good the bad and the ugly and so it starts off this cowboy music. I'm like, whoa, it's incredible. Like the atmosphere just, I was, like, I was expecting, you know, just thrashing straight in, but it's this. And then the uh, Ensam Man riff comes in at the beginning, like the kind of creeping in the sinisterness of it. And again, I hadn't heard the song. This was the first time I'd ever heard it. So it's totally overplayed now, but I, this was my first experience. And there it was, this like sinister creeping riff. And I was like, where's it going? And the drums come thundering. And it's just going from the atmosphere of an Ennio Morricone piece and the glory and the religious experience it kind of creates. And then this sinister, we're here to mean business going from this tiny riff and then just exploding. And you can hear they have these cannons go off. You heard the crowd and in my head, you know, I'm there. I'm just like, that's where I want to be. So that, that, yeah, just the excitement. I still, I can hear it in my voice now. (laughs) It's like, um i actually from preparing for this interview i was like oh i'm gonna check out to find this version of it and it's on youtube there's a whole video i didn't know there's a whole live show that is up there um and i was watching and i was like whoa i'm just blown away again so that's why i'm so buzzing now. <laughs> i've just been watching it <laughs> <laughs> i uh it, it was you don't really see the kind of bootleg things so much now well i, I guess we, i suppose because most people are just filming it on their phones and putting it on youtube now but yeah like for for you know for people that may be listening that were too young to, to 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 you know really know what John and I are talking about, it was huge. And you know you could go to sort of Camden Market and there'd be stalls just selling just bootlegs. I mean, ridiculously yeah. illegal, <laughs> but it yeah, didn't yeah, matter. It was, the amount of times that I I bought on vinyl like mm-hmm. live albums and I. The quality was consistently shit. The recording yeah, quality yeah. was just shit. Yeah. And however, and it yeah. still didn't stop me. I'd be like, next time, no. oh, do you know what? It probably ain't going to sound that good. And then the guy on the market mm-hmm. would always go, "Oh no, this one, this is this is really good." Oh, all right, brilliant. This one's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it home. Audio, the audio was shocking, but uh, yeah, but yeah. it was just it was a little bit more affordable. Absolutely. And that was that was the attraction. I was mm. getting hold of music that I was reading about um, in any way that I could. And our local 
HMV wasn't particularly well stocked with anything outside the mainstream. Mm. And so I was going to any, anywhere I could get it. You know, I had an older brother who was into rave at the time. So he was no good for finding music that I liked. His friends were pretty much into just rave as well. So like all my school friends were either just into mainstream music or there was a couple of other people kind of like me and we'd just try and share things between ourselves. And we didn't really understand the difference between bootleg or not. We, it kind of seems like people understand the music industry a bit more now, or maybe that's just my perception. Um, I remember in magazines reading and people would talk about, oh, we've moved from this label to that label. I, it, it meant nothing to me. All I was like, there's a tape with Metallica on in a shop yeah. and I can afford it, I'll buy it. It was very simple. Um, I don't think they probably financially missed my official purchases too much. I think they've done okay out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Metallica strike me as one of them bands that wouldn't be bothered about piracy or... No. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they got on all right with Napster. I think, I think we were... need to... <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. can erase that part of the interview. Sorry, Lars. <laughs> it wasn't a bootleg. It was a legit copy of, yeah. uh, of Black. Yeah. I've, spent, I've, I've spent a lot of money on Metallica since then. I don't feel too bad. <laughs> All right, John, for track two, I'm going to ask you uh, for the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Yeah, so um, I've gone with something. I thought quite long and hard about this because... When you're young, the things have an emotional impact on you can be fairly straightforward. Um, and so I was like, am I going to be honest here? And I decided, yeah, I'm just going to be honest. So I've gone for Blood on Blood by Bon Jovi, um, which for anyone who knows our, our band and our kind of ethos might be a little bit surprised that I was an avid Bon Jovi listener as a teen. Um, but yeah, it's... I don't know if you know the track, but it's it's an absolute blinding song. And in in the way that Bruce Springsteen um, manages to write songs that just get to the heart of what he's trying to say, he just like unashamedly kind of creates a scene and a film in his songs and delivers the everyman working class hero thing. You know, he's in love. Bon Jovi did the same thing, but with loads of 80s glammy cheese thrown in. Um, and as a teenager, I didn't notice any of that glammy cheese. I was just totally in love with the simple message of brotherhood in this song. Blood on blood, blood brothers. You know, I'm 12, 13 years old, starting to become a teenager into that kind of like freaky time you're nervous, you're like, I was a skinny kid. Um, the idea that you can be this kind of all for one, one for all, us against the world was really appealing. And hearing it in a song by these people singing it on a stage and you'd see photos of them looking amazing, like everyone cheering. It's like, well, this looks incredible. As I've got older, I still love the song, but I... I love it in the way that I kind of like 80s films. I see them for what they are, and I love the nostalgia. Yeah. And I can totally put myself back into the mindset, and I get why the creative choices were made in the era they made, because they were often made uncynically, I think. It was the current thing. It was the music of the time. It was the film of the time. Um, 
And now it's easy to look back and go, oh, it's really cheesy, it's really bad. But there's an honesty to what they were doing in as much as they were trying to create the pure, perfect teenage anthem of brotherhood, and they made it. (laughs) But surely, you know, at that point, like, um, Bon Jovi would have had, you know, the best producers, the best technology. They would have had everything you know, yeah. at, at their beck and call. And yeah. so when that album was being put together, you know, mm-hmm. it was completely of its time, if not maybe ahead of its time. But Absolutely. the technology and that sound has just not dated as well as perhaps the aforementioned Springsteen. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. There's a more timeless classic thing to something like Bruce Springsteen that yeah. he's not so of an era that Bon Jovi were. And I think a lot of that's just tied in with the image and anything where you present something that's very current, very of its moment, it's always going to date quicker. Um, Fashion comes and goes, but style is consistent. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I can listen to that song and I can just laugh openly at it at the same time as kind of having nostalgic tears of joy. Yeah. And remember, I, I, I romantically remember the 13-year-old me uncynically listening to that song. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, you just nailed that because some people might call that like guilty pleasures, but I just don't subscribe to that. I think if there's yeah, pleasure in it, it's a pleasure. And like, I, you know, enjoy it for, for, for what it meant, for, you know, for what it is now, for, for you know, for ever. I, I, I'm just never really kind of got that, oh, yeah, you know, this is my guilty pleasure. It's like, why, why are you feeling guilty about something that feels nice? I couldn't agree more. I just think the idea of attaching guilt to a pleasure as harmless as some music you like is just crazy. You know, of all the things to feel guilty about, listening to some music that some other people deem uncool is certainly not one of them. 100% right. The song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Uh, so, at school, um, I was a little bit of an outsider, I think, with my music taste. And I was always looking for stuff that seemed to be outside of the mainstream. And one band that I absolutely fell in love with was a band called White Zombie. And so I've chosen their song, Supercharger Heaven, which is off their big album, Astro Creep 2000. And it's weird because if I talk to just about any musician in England, no one knows white zombie really. They know who Rob zombie is. They don't, but they don't know white zombie, the band, but they sold millions of records in America. They were really big. They just didn't connect over here for some reason. Um, I think think to a degree they did. I I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm 47 and, Mm -hmm. and of, you know, I, I've I've run an alternative venue for for close to thirty years, and mm. White Zombie were a big deal. Like you know, on the alternative oh, really? kind of metal rock kind of scene. You know, mm-hmm. when they were doing pre Rob Zombie becoming the Rob yeah, Zombie that most people know yeah. him for now. But yeah. uh, that album's incredible. Oh, it's amazing! It's absolutely amazing. I mean, I think maybe it could just be. It might just be my. You know, we're talking about childhood or, or school years, and I think the regionality of music scenes was quite a thing kind of in the late nineties, you know, the internet wasn't a feature. Um, and so I think that I wasn't really aware. I didn't know anyone else that liked white zombie. And that was enough for me to feel 
where are all their who are, there's people buying these records but where the yeah. hell are they i want to meet them i want them to force them to be my friends um <laughs> um but yeah i i that was that was kerrang magazine i i opened it up and just saw this picture of rob zombie i was like fuck that guy look at him you know i'm i'm there dressing in clothes that like my mum had bought me um feeling kind of like a nerd and and wanting to be cool and there's this person who just looked like an alien to me you know robs I mean, just looked like this intergalactic space cowboy from hell and then on the next page is the bass player sean Yusolt, who for anyone who doesn't know sean is a is a female um and i saw this name sean and this woman i was like that is like is that is it, am I looking at a man? Am I looking at a woman? Do I care? Does it matter? I'm intrigued. I'm excited. Like the whole thing. I was like, there's a, there's a, a, a woman in a heavy band or there's a guy who totally is passing himself off as a woman in this band. It felt exciting and different and just setting itself up as like other. So I was already sold before I'd even heard a note. And their album was advertised as coming out and I went and bought it on the day it came out, put my headphones in and was just in their world for the next two or three years, basically. Um, and I took the... The CD had an incredible inlay. Um, Rob Zombie's a real artist and he and Sean, I think, had created the band together and both of them came from art and photography backgrounds. Um, and as a result of that, their artwork was incredibly detailed and it was in the era when um, record labels would have, you know, 40 page booklets for CDs and stuff. And that's why it's like, it this huge fold out thing. And every single song had a panel for itself with its own unique drawings. And then there was so much detail and tiny text all within it. And you could just spend ages looking at it. And that's what I did at school, just sat in the back row of classes, just just like absorbed so even when I couldn't hear the music I was still in the world and I was just in love with it and that song Supercharger Heaven was the only one that if I went to like a friend's house and we'd have like teenage parties and stuff everyone else was putting on um blur or pulp um oasis stuff like that and it just wasn't my thing at all. And I would sneak in and try and put something on and everyone would be like, fuck's sake, John, just turn, <laughs> turn it off. But White Zombie, that song, Supercharged Heaven, for some reason just got the thumbs up from everyone. It was like, it was John's allowed song. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm going to put my song on now. And everyone liked it. Everyone was like, the chorus is like this, like, devil man, devil man, chant. And I just loved it. And um, and then me and my best friend at the time, we managed to convince our parents to allow us to go to Donington Monsters of Rock when we were 14 and White Zombie played at that. And we'd read that um, the Church of England had sent um, a priest to like sanctify the ground before they played. And we were just buzzing like you know again totally uncynical like now i'd see it and be like oh this marketing ploy i kind of see it more for us i just was sold i was like this is great and i was all about the music you know we what won... a time though what how exciting oh it's just the best it was just <laughs> and when they came on stage i was just you know we were in a whirlwind of like dreadlocks and hair at this front row in fact this guy he flipped his hair back and i'm sure that i swallowed a dreadlock it was, <laughs> it was uh, yeah and just but yeah the the chaos that happened when they came out on stage it was like 
suddenly I was like, here's all the people. Here's all the people that love White Zombie because I was in this massive mosh pit going crazy, kind of fighting for my life within it at the same time. It's like screaming with joy. It was incredible. So do you think like it was around that time that, you you know, you sort of found your tribe and, 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 and found, you know, like-minded um yeah i i i discovered that they existed but i struggled to connect with people where i lived who were like that i was always you know i listened to podcasts like your own i listened to people talking on the radio you know about their musical experiences and i rarely hear a story that i feel is similar to mine i'm sure they're there i just haven't heard them and it's it's just that I felt very isolated in terms of my tastes and what I wanted to do. I had had some very good friends, um, but they weren't particularly musical um, and they enjoyed elements of it and kind of um, going to the odd gig and stuff with me. But it was very much like a, a passing phase before they went to university, you know, that kind of thing, where I was like, I'm, I'm just, this is, I'm a lifer. Like, this is, there's something more here. This is... Um, my religion this is where I want to go you know with this and I couldn't find people who felt the same who um, shared who who were in it who seemed to be in it for the same reasons and that's not because they didn't exist it was because I was probably too shy to talk to them Um, I was always quite uncertain about going and talking to new people um And so I didn't really find that full connection. And if I did go to a rock club um, or or anything like that, the whole kind of like drinking side of metal, the whole kind of like Lemmy kind of from Motorhead kind of vibe of it, um, at the time, I just didn't get it. I was was so all about the music. You know, when I went to Donington as a 14-year-old, and if I tell that story, loads of people are like, oh, man, I bet I was crazy. You must have, like, got messed up. And so I was like, no, I got there and just watched every single band and had an ice cream halfway through, you know. <laughs> I, was, I, I, just, I wasn't there trying to sneak beers in. I just, if I could get in my body in and my ears in, that was all I was interested about. I, I wasn't bothered by the lifestyle. I found that quite off-putting and felt felt kind of alienated that some people were really attracted particularly to heavier rock by the lifestyle rather than the music. And it just seemed to be that every time I met people who were kind of like potentially kind of forming a bond with, they were more that vibe than people who were just about the music. And eventually when I did find some people, I just immediately formed a band, you know, um, and, and kept... I suppose each tribe I've been in has been much more just a very small gang. And it's always just been this kind of like little gang as a band. And, and, and I've enjoyed that kind of us against the world thing. Um, I don't feel I've ever totally got connected to the wider community of it. Uh, But I think that's more my fault than the, the community's fault. And I think, you know, if you, if you're talking predominantly about the kind of sort of mid nineties to, to, you know, going back to what you were saying about trying to find people to go to gigs with that kind of wasn't just a, Oh, we'll go and watch this one band with John. Yeah. Before we go. The mid nineties was probably a, a huge peak in this country for guitar music, but yeah. a million miles from metal, you know, yeah, it was, as exactly. the mentioned, blur, Oasis, pulp. That yeah. was, it was high flying, 
huge indie anthems everywhere at this point. Absolutely. So if you yeah. had a kind of desire to listen to guitar music, you was mm-hmm. going to be pulled that way. And yeah. And one of the things I like talking about when I talk about tribalism, when I obviously I asked you about, you know, did you feel like you found your tribe at, at Donington? And mm-hmm. when you look at youth cultures and, you know, whether you call them grungers, whether you call them whatever, you know, there was indie kids when the Britpop scene was happening, you know, through to emo, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. They've all come and gone and we've, you know, and and so many guests on this podcast will go and, you know, I think due to streaming services and, and, you know, just the way that the world has changed, uh, that it does seem to be a far more universal kind of, you speak to younger people now and they're like, yeah, I love music. Oh, yeah, what music? Yeah, yeah. a bit of everything. Whereas, yeah, yeah, go back sort of maybe 20 years and it was more tribal. It's like, oh, I like drum and bass, you know. And, okay, yeah. I... And, and you'd wear them colors, you know. You'd be like, you could yes. look at them and go, he's into drum and bass. And, and that's yes. all kind of disappeared apart from metal. Yeah. Metal's yeah. the only tribe that <laughs> still, like, you just go, he's a metaler. Yeah. And like, and I don't yeah, mean I, that as a lazy kind of, no. you know, but it is, you know, it, I've seen so many different kind of tribes come through my clubs over the years through di- all, yeah. from, you know, what was happening in Manchester in 89, through yeah. to Seattle, yeah. through to Camden, you know, through, through to mm-hmm. New Metal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You don't really get this. a lot of that fashion anymore, but no. the basic yeah. metal setup, <laughs> it's always there. there. <laughs> it is. And, it's it's universal, you know. We go on tour because um, we're not a metal band. I don't for anyone listening who doesn't know anything about my band. We're we're not a metal band. We take elements from metal. We love loads of metal. Um, it just happens to be that's what I grew up on um, and have a real passion for uh, in in my earlier life. But um, when we're driving through Europe, every small town through to the big cities, there will be some metal people like there's always when you're driving through it's like there's a metal guy there's some like kind of like um cyber goth metal woman who's there yeah um and um you know it makes you realize how 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 important it is for people who who are into that subgenre or into that genre to display it it's not just something that is part of your musical listening it's part of your life and I think that whilst I didn't personally become hugely connected to that wider tribe, it did let me know they existed. You know, when I was at Donington, I was like, every single person here is different to people I know, but there's thousands of them. You know, that was, I found it a, like an amazing experience to see that number of people who were living what seemed like a crazy lifestyle to me and just looked so different. You know, I was so conservative, like as a, as a young teen, like in my dress, just being shy and everything. And just seeing this, I think like, wow, it's all there. And it's true though, that, that tribalism hasn't really left metal. Um, and that kind of where waving the freak flag high, I think is the <laughs> fa- my favorite phrase. To do I'm there. liking that. I like that. Yeah. In fact, one more tiny bit, it's like, uh, a guy who used to roadie for my old band. He's one of my best friends. And he, um, if he, if he's, if he's relating something, like he'll be like, oh, I met this guy, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, was he like, he's like, oh, he was cool. He was a metler. And he always uses it as this shorthand for like, he was a metler as though like 
we know we can trust him. We know he's a good bloke. We know he doesn't take himself too seriously. We know that he's happy to rough it in the back of a van. You know, there's something kind of like this shorthand of he's a metler as a this tick of authenticity that he's a good guy. <laughs> and I was like, we can't. <laughs> there's other assets, other facets to people's personalities than just the love of the riff. <laughs> Listen up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've only got another new sponsor. Egg Fried. It's this super cool clothing label. And if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and and the designer's kind of weird sense of humour in the mix, and you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now, they do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D. Save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, And again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. Okay, um... For track four, John, I'm going to ask yeah. you the first song you remember buying from a record store. Uh, so I've gone for the Ghostbusters theme tune um, by Ray Parker Jr. Um, this was, I mean, I can't remember exactly when it was. I was really young and it was like proper pocket money stuff, you know, getting a pound a week from my parents and saving it up. And my dad was quite into music. He did, his taste is not particularly great in my opinion but he was very into music it formed you know as a relatively large part of his life um and so going to a record shop was was something that he did quite often so being a little kid and being like well I next time we go I want to buy something can I buy something the thing I wanted to buy was the 12 it was a red 12 inch with a glow in the dark ghost on the front the Ghostbusters logo 
Um, and I bought it just because of how it looked. I didn't know anything. And then we got home and turned the lights off and put it on and there it was glowing in this this song. And it turns out it's a really, really good song. You know, I, I got lucky with that that first purchase and really enjoyed it. What a cool first record. The glow in the dark vinyl. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't have it anymore, unfortunately. It's somewhere it's got lost in a move somewhere. I, 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 every time we move and I find some like old boxes or I go to my mum's house or something and like where's you know go through some storage i'm like maybe it's in here somewhere but i still haven't come across it there'll be that moment like when uh they open the ark you'll just open a box and it'll glow <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly Sli- <laughs> it's slimer isn't it it's like yeah. uh, glowing out at me yeah covered up in like ectoplasm like joyous <laughs> at finding this record yeah but i absolutely loved it and it's it's a really um it's a really good song. And funny enough, I mentioned it to Kitty and um, Kitty's the singer and like my main creative partner in St. Agnes. And um, she was in a band in her sort of mid-teens. And one of the songs they covered was the Ghostbusters theme. She was playing bass for it. And there's this really interesting little push on the bass that happens on an unusual beat I've always loved. And she was like, yeah, like it, when we used to do that, we used to grin at each other. Like we, we've got that part just right. And, you know, so it's interesting that song as weird as it is, has formed a part of our musical uh, uh, um, story for both of us. You, you mentioned your dad was into music. So yeah. uh, what, what kind of stuff was you being sort of exposed to at home then? Um, so he was mostly into like fifties rock and roll originally. Um, there was two definite eras of my dad's taste, which was fifties rock and roll, like, uh, Eddie Cochran, summertime blues, Buddy Holly stuff. Um, and then, uh, like moving into bands like the who, um, and then a definite kind of gap between that and then real like eighties sort of Phil Collins, Dire Straits, Tina Turner. Um, I never really was so into the 80s part of my dad's stuff. It was a bit too kind of soft for my taste. Mm. But I really liked the energy um, when I was like seven, eight, nine. I really loved the energy of uh, particularly Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues. That was... I loved the fact there was this like defining riff. And I think I remember saying, you know, what is that? And my dad's like, it's guitar. It's like, okay, well, I want to play guitar. Um, And my parents did buy me a, a classical guitar um just really kind of cheap thing and and got some lessons with um a woman who lived down the road and the very first thing we learned was summertime blues which i was amazed that i was i thought this was going to be take me 10 years before i was going to be allowed to learn this iconic thing i was like by the end of the first lesson kind of fumbling my way through it and i was like well, i'm just hooked on this this is incredible wonderful well, fast forward in uh, a few years, I'm going to ask you yeah. to track five, the song that soundtrack your year's clubbing. So that, that obviously lends itself to, to rock clubs. That's not just... Yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah, I, I listened to your interview with Jack Besson from Reef. Oh, lovely, Jack. Um, and he was saying, like, clubbing wasn't a big thing for him, but he was like, Motorhead, Ace of Spades, I think was the track that he chose first. And I kind of have a more, uh, I guess, have a similar experience to him, that, like, my clubbing years weren't typically clubbed like heavy my brother as i said was really into rave um and he was a dj and totally into that scene um and in fact you know i tried with that style of music i was like you know he seemed so into it and it seemed something that i just wasn't into at all but i was like you know i'll, I'll give it a go um and he took me to a rave when i was about 15 
in a warehouse in Battersea. So this is the kind of rave that people who are into that scene talk about as like legendary. Um, to prove that it really just wasn't for me, I actually fell asleep <laughs> when I was there. So could you, not, a... could you not kind of draw the comparisons to, to metal insofar as both the energy and, and just the, the anarchic kind of concept of this abrasive DIY music, you know, being you know and being played in a warehouse which you know it wasn't overproduced mm-hmm. you know music being played in a chrome laden club it was it was naughty and it yeah, was different I, I, I think um i totally understand what you're saying now now i'm older yeah. at the time when i was 15 i was you know really into rock and metal and it just felt like i suppose I just needed to see something that was truly live for me to be hooked on it. I wanted to see how it was made. I wanted to see someone playing guitar, someone playing drums. A DJ just wasn't enough for me. I get now what the appeal is and I get the anarchy and I get the, I I understand it a lot better. At the time I kind of, you know, I'd just been listening to Bon Jovi like two years before (laughs) is my main thing. I wanted something maybe that was a little slicker. I wasn't really kind of at the um, anarchic point in my life at all. Um, And actually I haven't said what song I've chosen, which will help say it. So it's Nine Inch Nails' Wish is the song I've chosen for this clubbing thing. And this was a turning point in my musical taste where I really got, into this kind of punky attitude that the music is something that you could physically throw yourself into. Like, so if you look at bands like Bon Jovi and Metallica and stuff, it's really well rehearsed and it's really um, quite pristine um, and a lot of money's been spent on it. Nine Inch Nails felt underground and dirty and aggressive and full of punk anger and I'm not a huge fan of punk, a lot of punk bands, but I love the punk attitude. And I found it in, in Nine Inch Nails' Wish. And so when I'd go to rock clubs um, at that time, a lot of the stuff that was being played that was, was um, things like the beginnings of new metal, I suppose. Um, and the only rock club in town was one called the Nexus in Southampton. And the DJ there, a guy called Keith, you know, he had total dominion over it. So it was just whatever he played was what we listened to. And he really liked dark wave kind of goth. And it just wasn't my thing at all. So you'd kind of wait through all this dark wave goth, kind of sat on the sidelines drinking Guinness um, in, in this smoke-filled room, waiting for a song you'd like to come on to go up and go crazy to. And suddenly, like... Nine Inch Nails would come and and it would often be Wish and suddenly me, you know, me and a couple of friends would descend on the dance floor and go crazy until until the dark wave started again and then we'd probably go outside for a cigarette or something. But um, that anarchic nihilism really appealed to me, um, particularly in my later teens, like early 20s, and really has become part of my outlook on live shows. You know, I think the way that Nine Inch Nails performed in their like classic era from the late nineties up to like 2010, those live shows, if you watch them on YouTube or anything, they're just raw and intense and so much about throwing yourself into the physical performance with no respect for 
the performance you've got coming tomorrow your 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 plan is to like die on the stage that night and i really associate and really that appealed to me hugely as someone who would go into social situations and often feel like i hadn't made any kind of mark or anything i'd left and been quite anonymous the idea that you could just be like not only am I here on the stage, I'm just going to give everything. That just appealed hugely. And and so seeing a whole room full of people spring to life when that song came on in a club, in a rock club, um, and then seeing live videos of them playing it um, at Woodstock 94. Oh, I think it was, what a with the, with the mud and everything. I just I found it absolutely mind-blowing. And it really changed my view of what a rock show could be. It didn't have to be a well-produced Iron Maiden extravaganza. It could be something that was very well thought out and um, still have high production value, but the heart of it was about raw primal violence. Was, really. Primal as fuck. Like, yeah. It really was. Absolutely. Have you watched the um, the Song Exploder episode uh, on Netflix? Um, I haven't of... done yet. I've heard about it. Oh, mate. It's... It's just they're talking about how they, you know, wrote and put together Hurt, but um, yeah. oh my god, like the it, but it goes into the the excesses of, of touring at that point and mm-hmm. that show mm-hmm. and what basically Trent was doing to himself was you know was yeah. just literally putting it all on the line every night and obviously that I, takes its toll and uh, absolutely, but yeah, it's just. I think Trent Reznor, you know, and I, I rarely use this word, but I, I do think he's an absolute genius. I, I think, you know, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I just think like is hearing for me hearing um, Pretty Hate Machine when that come out. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a big fan of electronic music at that point. You know, I, I loved you mm-hmm. know, Depeche Mode and lots of the industrial stuff that was going on. And then this kind of looked like he'd drawn all of the best bits of that. And then just thought, right, I'm going to make this super angry, and like, and yeah. just going to just throw some just disgusting guitars over it, and just see where I can yeah. go. And it's just glorious, yeah. absolutely glorious. It, it is glorious. He's he Trent is incredible, and I talk about their classic era. It's classic for me, but I think that he's still making very relevant music now. It's not necessarily quite so to my taste, but I still think he's a very authentic artist. Um, who really kind of goes with his muse and what he wants to do. And I find that incredibly inspiring. He doesn't feel he has to repeat himself at all. Um, But I think that there's two Trent Reznors. There's the very articulate, very intelligent guy in the studio crafting incredible sonic soundscapes. And then there's the same guy, he's on stage, covered in mud, wearing a pair of fishnets, smashing up a keyboard, trying to force some kind of... I think he's trying to force a moment of total freedom from his own need to control everything. Um, And I really identify with that (laughs) as someone who... Most bands I've been in, it's been kind of a solo project-ish. And... And I apologise to any former bandmates who are listening to this, but you know what a tyrant I was. Um, I was really in control of everything and would micromanage every element. And so then when we're playing a show, it would I'd be really in my head and not really able to totally let go. And I'd come away feeling so disappointed in myself that 
my main reason for loving loud music and wanting to play heavy music was to totally lose myself and to stop being shy, to stop um, worrying about everything. And yet I was there worrying even more. And so seeing someone who just absolutely would blast through it, I think he's the same. I think he's trying to just forget what he's worrying about, forget the control, just absolutely cause true chaos so he doesn't know what's going to happen and it creates these moments of like absolute beauty in it of of uh of humanity for me and kitty and i when we started saint agnes we were both still quite in control of what we were doing and we would do when we started playing shows we realized quite quickly that we both both wanted the same thing from the live show and it was this more nine inch nails trent resner experience to lose control and we just fed off each other's energy with that. And our, our live show is now really wild. And they're not, it's not designed to be wild. They just are because we, however careful we try and be in our preparation, we just lose our minds. And it's the most freeing, wonderful thing. And after a gig, you know, we can barely remember what's just happened. It's, it's just so great. It's, uh, and, and, and I just love it. And that's what we've been missing so much during lockdown, you know, it's a, to go to that other mental state. It's not something you can really do when you're sat down watching Gardeners World, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take you home for track six. And I'm going to ask you for a yeah. favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Okay, so I'm from Hampshire, um, and I actually, um, I was always more into American music growing up, and so there wasn't a load of, like, bands I knew in the area growing up that I'd like, you know, I'd love to have chosen some, like, really influential Southampton band that only I saw, but um, I've gone for Creeper um, and their song Cyanide, and that's quite a new track, and I, um, I think that Creeper are a really good band, um, and I think they're quite inspirational um, in my view for what can come out of Southampton. And that might sound silly because everyone's got to be from somewhere, but I always saw Southampton as kind of just, there was nothing I really liked about the music that was coming out of Southampton and everything that did always felt like other people could be anything they wanted to be. But in Southampton, there seemed to be this attitude of kind of like chopping people down. Don't try and be too, glamorous or too cool or too pretentious or too anything it always just felt like it was like chopping people down to size and i love the fact that creeper i mean he now all three of them things that you just put yeah he's completely glamorous he's so cool he's got pretend all the kind of pretentiousness you want in a rock and roll star will now's that (laughs) exactly and i think i think that's just brilliant and and like um i think he's probably like probably 10 years younger than me um but i i would have loved to have been in a band a few years younger than them kind of back in the day looking at them as like local heroes of oh if they're setting that outlier of what you could be the you know they're writing songs that would do go great in a musical of like you know or or they also write these great like screamery punk anthems that like just soundtrack teenage years you know they've He's obsessed with um, – he's, he's been on this podcast, Will. Um, yeah, I saw him. And he's also been on a, another podcast I do where I ask guests to pick a, uh, a topic and then count down a top five. And he done top five moments from Jim Steinman. So the musical mm-hmm. thing that you've heard in there mm-hmm. is his absolute 
obsession with Jim yeah. Steinman, who obviously okay. has made musicals and has obviously, you know, Bad of Hell and, and you know, and mm-hmm. everything else. So that kind of flamboyance and musical kind of sand has definitely come from his love of, of, of that. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I find as, as, a, as someone who's grown up in the area, um, seeing a band come from the area who just don't seem to give a shit about all the stuff that used to worry me about, you know, worrying about being cut down to size. Like, fuck it, we're doing this and we're going big on it. I just think it's great. And and they make great videos. The production's really good. I haven't ever seen Creeper live, but um, hopefully that will change at some point once lockdown's over. Yeah. Have you met Will? I haven't. Oh, I haven't met Will. I, he's a lovely, I, lovely guy. I know people that know him um, and everyone always says great things about him, but yeah, I've never met him. Yeah. He's uh, he, he's a good guy. I hadn't heard too much about the band um, when uh, I, I got to uh, interview him, and then got the record, and and then just you know got stuck into to videos and stuff. And uh, yeah, I just I think it's you know I totally agree that you know if you was a few years younger than that, messing around with guitar, you know, and and not being particularly understood mm-hmm. amongst your your fellow pupils or whatever, yeah, and you saw that, yeah. You know, I just think that that would be definitely very, very sort of, you know, inspiring. Absolutely. I, I, and I think it's also really brave that they changed their sound so much from the first record to the second record, going from like quite like AFI sort of horror punk thing to this more kind of Bowie musical-esque thing. Yeah. And it works because it doesn't feel cynical. It feels like an authentic move. And that, is the heart of good art i think if you do something however pretentious it might be or however unusual a change it might be if it's done for the right reasons it rings true and feels great it's only bad when people quote unquote sell out because they're doing it because they feel they should rather than it's their authentic musical selves couldn't agree more right it's last track and uh, and it's your time to to turn someone onto something new, mate. And uh, I'm going to ask you for a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Uh, well, the band I can't stop banging on about is a band called Horror, and it's spelled H O nine nine O nine, and their song "United States of Horror." Um, I could have chosen quite a few of their songs, to be honest. In in this, I think they have a really good catalogue, and they're quite prolific. Um, so, Horror, for those who don't know. Um, are a kind of hardcore punk industrial hip hop <laughs> act from New York, um, fronted by um, Gene and Edie. These just two crazy. I mean, just that they're so flamboyant and happy to kind of again wave the freak flag. They're kind of Rob Zombie esque kind of guys. Um, so charismatic and so compelling in their performance and their vocal delivery. Um, and I've this, the exact same excitement I felt when I was a teenager listening to white zombie, I felt for the first time again, when I first came across horror, um, I was with Kitty, um, and I had seen their name come up in something. Um, I actually had a job, in London that was involved with like music copyright and basically just looking at lists of stuff that was being pirated and all this kind of thing. And, and I just saw this name and, and nearly all of that music was dance music. So anytime something came up that was not dance music, the name would stick out. And so it's this like horror and 
And I was like, oh, I'm going to check that when I get home and, and listen to it with Kitty. And we're like, whoa, you know, this is this is something else. And I like, looked at photos, looked, and their live shows are just. Have chaos. you seen them that, yet? Yeah, we played with them. Oh. We, the, the very last show that we did, the the one I said about. Oh, um, sorry, you, you, you yeah. touched on that at the beginning, of course. Yeah, yeah, on Valentine's Day, that's that that was with them. Um, you know, we basically we kind of like harassed them until they gave us a show. Um, we're we're not the most natural musical bedfellows for them, like particularly from our first album, which was kind of more like a blues based. I say blues based, but there was a blues element within what we did which I think a lot of people pigeonholed us as a kind of more like blues band, but we always saw ourselves as just twisting and utilizing a genre to kind of create something that to us felt kind of freakish and weird. Sure. So we, that kind of freakishness is like what we've always aimed for. And so with the following releases that we've done and what we've got coming up, we've kind of um, just used different elements and seeing a band like horror twist the genres that they're using um, and be so comfortable to just not care about how what they might be perceived as or how they might be seen. It's just incredible. And as a live band, it's just absolute chaos. They're incredible. Um, the drum, we've seen them twice. We've played with them once and saw them another time and with two different drummers each time. And, and the drummers they've had for the band's, band has always been incredible as well. And I for the kind of music they're doing, having the live drums is really important. There's obviously a lot of electronica and things going on and loops and samples. And in my younger, more purist years, I was kind of a bit against that kind of thing, like I said about going to a rave. As I got older and into Nine Inch Nails and everything and understanding that, okay, there's ways of using this that's really sonic carnage that can be really exciting. Mm. I still... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. They'll think that having as much of it live as possible really helps in a live show because that element of chaos and the drummers they've had have always been the totally like propelling them forward and then there's just gene and Edie at the front of the stage you know like 
Jean would be there wearing a wedding dress and like a balaclava and crazy long sort of like fingers or something like glow in the dark fingers and and Edie will just like start taking his clothes off and head jump into the audience you're like what is going on it's incredible wonderful and I mean you know all of them things that you know I, I can see the kind of timeline from Nine Inch Nails to maybe Prodigy to Horror I think like yeah I mean yeah. am I right that Horror actually worked with a Prodigy didn't they I think maybe on the last Prodigy record like, on the last yeah on the last Prodigy record they did a song called Fight Fire with yeah. Fire with Prodigy and Prodigy like a, a great you know we love that's you know that I could do a whole show talking about them as well yeah. um but yeah, I think that there is a definite lineage, Nine Inch Nails, Prodigy, Horror. Yeah. You know, those kind of bands that they, they're kind of punky, you know. Like the Prodigy are a, kind of a punk band in a lot Straight of ways. Punk band. Like, you know, they started off with the kind of more rave thing, but it very quickly, all, you know, became darker and, and less about kind of Keith walking around with a beautific smile and a bit more about Keith, like, confronting the audience and and the and the music feeling razor sharp um and i think that and it was that sorry go on no, go on sorry i was what was you gonna say i sorry. think i lost no 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 i think i've lost my train, train I, 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 there. sorry i'll just i'll just get very excited when we start talking prodigy um but uh i do think that you know you're talking about that kind of that purist kind of attitude that that you know some metalers have of you know it's, it's got to be this it's got to be this mm-hmm. it was bands like nine inch nails and later bands like the prodigy that mm-hmm. you know took the rave to the rock and vice versa took the rock to mm-hmm. the rave and yeah i just think that that is something that that band never get enough credit for it's like I, you know how many bands could you know theoretically go on and headline you know, Donington headline, Glastonbury headline, you know, Creamfields, that band. I know, it's, I know. They, it's, it's, in, it's genuinely incredible. And with so many hits spanning such a long um, uh, period of time. Yeah. And if they play the old stuff now, it still works. Like yeah. it's, they can, they've managed to reinterpret like the first album stuff when they play live, like, um, you know, a lot of work's been done, obviously, on their show to bring those up to feel like, okay, they feel relevant to their more punky attitude. Now, and, and just um, a couple of years ago, just before Keith died, um, Kitty, uh, me and Andy, our drummer from the band, we went to see the Prodigy um, in London and Kitty had never seen them before and was, I, you know, didn't know loads about them beyond, like, the main hits Um and we got there and I just lost her. As soon as, as, soon as the, it started, she was just gone in this mosh pit. And she came out at the end and she was like, that I've just <laughs> had a religious experience. You know, <laughs> that has just changed so much for me. She was like, I've been like elbowed in the face, like walked all over and had the best time of my life. And she just was absolutely buzzing from it. Um, and I found that really inspiring because... I was getting to see the excitement I'd felt about similar bands, um, which I didn't really get to share with anyone back when I was a teenager. I was getting to vicariously enjoy it through Kitty's newfound love of these things that she had kind of like come across. It's like to be there when someone opens that Christmas present is quite exciting. And, uh, And then we fed off that 
energy a lot and the the second record that we did the family strange we definitely had a prodigy influence in there and some of the beats that we were using you know our drummer andy we really pushed him to be like you know if um if the prodigy are making beats that are that danceable just from samples of real drums but mainly you know we we can make something as danceable and as heavy as that with a real drummer like let's let's go for it that should be our benchmark let's rather than referencing led zeppelin with a live drum kit which has been done a thousand times let's 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 see what we can let's see what we can do can we to a beat that Liam comes up with from the Prodigy on a real drum kit. And then if we're thinking like that, what's going to happen with the guitar riffs? You know, I'm a fundamentally a kind of punky bluesy player. What am I going to do over that drum beat? Let's see what happens. And that was really inspiring for us. Wicked. Well, let's hope that we, you know, that the cinemas will be open in time for us to all go and enjoy the, the documentary that's being made. The documentary. Um, which, are, oh, that's yeah. going to be something special. You know, I'm looking forward yeah, to Yeah, I think... I think it's going to be quite emotional for a lot of people because they're such a fundamental part of some people's um, formative memories around music. And then the sad um, story for Keith, you know, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a lot of uh, emotion and a kind of sadly tinged joy that comes from watching like incredible performances as yeah. that have a, a, the, the tragedy alongside it. I, I was lucky to see them up, but you know, they're, they're from, you know, they're from Essex where I'm from and, yeah, to see them at, at, at V ninety seven or eight seven, I believe, when mm-hmm. Fat of the Land was the biggest record, you know, in the world, and yeah. to see them come yeah. home and play their own back garden, and uh, to this day, oh. I've not seen a gig anywhere near as good as that. Poison yeah. played live at that V festival was the greatest moment of any live experience I've ever had, and it was just huge and glorious oh, i can imagine <laughs> i could i i yeah i can imagine and and those those moments they they're beyond they transcend a audience member watching a band perform and hearing some music they it's just your whole being comes into line yeah. with all these other people and with the music and you just feel like you could do anything in that moment. You know, you feel like the power of yourself and the collective and everything is so like transcendent. It seems absolutely incredible. No, I can hear in your voice the same thing that I was talking about <laughs> earlier on the first question about Metallica, that thing of like, oh, I feel such emotion about it. It's yeah. deeply moving. Well, John, we put together a, a playlist for Spotify with all of your song choices on and, and some of the other records that we've we've chatted about uh, cool. today's uh, conversation. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, you know, we should have recorded this yesterday, but my, my internet literally collapsed. And uh, and so you were very gracious and, and, and rescheduled for us to record today. And, and no I'm problem. so glad you did because I've had an absolutely wonderful chat, man. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's just a real pleasure to get to actually talk about some of these things you know uh, when you do most interviews you're just trying to plug your most recent record and you very rarely get to delve into these things and relive some musical moments that i haven't thought about for a long time you know the uh as kitty referred said to it she goes the anti-toxic masculinity of listing blood on blood by bon jovi you know <laughs> it was the only way that me and my 13 year old friends could show each other we loved each other was to kind of punch the air along to this anthem because we were too scared to tell each other we you know we loved each other so 
it was that was the vehicle that was there and so Wonderful. having the opportunity to talk about that kind of thing is very rare so thank you very much for having me on oh it's been an absolute pleasure so in regards to, to the band what's happening um so we have released a couple of singles from our upcoming mini album the mini album is going to be called that it's called vampire and that is out in March on the 26th. And we've got the, the uh, main single, Vampire, the single coming out on the 26th of February. So as a band who we are totally DIY, we make our own videos, we uh, mix our own music, everything. There's a lot of work going on. So we've just finished making the third video um, for, the, for the mini album. Um, which under coronavirus lockdown rules is not an easy task, I tell you that much. Um, so yeah, we've got we just got loads of new music coming out basically, um, and we've got some bits and pieces, some live things that are going to be coming up online, um, which I can't say too much about right now. But people will be able to hear some of the new tracks um, played live, which will be exciting because we've never really played them together. We wrote them and recorded them. Um, stood as far apart from each other as we could, having very minimal rehearsals, and we haven't had a chance to actually, like, properly knuckle down and, and make some noise together in quite a long time. So we're we're setting up a, a date for <laughs> when we can do that. And if people want to find out, you know, all about that and, and everything else that's going on um, with your releases and stuff like that, where's the mm. best place to keep up to speed with a band? I mean, Facebook and Instagram is gonna is is the main port called everything that we do goes up up on there we also have a um a fan club called the death or glory gang which is i guess it's a bit more than a fan club it's our hardcore early supporters of the band anyone who kind of went above and beyond in terms of helping us find a place to stay on tour or buying some early deluxe product that we made to try and fund what we're doing we added to a list um, and we send them gifts from time to time um and and have this kind of like hardcore hardcore group of people so i'd like to just give a quick shout out to the death or glory gang that are listening and say that we don't show you guys enough love but we absolutely do love you um and um we can't wait to hear what you think about our new record that's coming out wonderful um i just want to thank you again i've had a really really lovely time thanks so much john Thank you very much, Stu. It's been a pleasure. How nice was John? I just told you that that was going to be a really nice kind of heartwarming one. And I just love it when people are so open and honest about their passion of music and, you know, that, that kind of journey. And it's, it's everything this podcast is about. And, yeah, I can't, I can't thank John enough for it. And, uh, and yeah. Yous are still here, so yous have enjoyed it as much as me. Um, thanks ever so much for listening to this podcast. Thanks once more to John. Um, as mentioned uh, in my kind of pre-show waffle, uh, go and have a look in the back catalogue. Go and get stuck in if this is your first time listening. Um, subscribe, that really helps. If you're on iTunes, drop us a, a review you know, or rate us. All of these things help to kind of get the word out there. And, you know, I say this week in, week out, but if you do see us on the socials, give us a like, a share, a retweet, uh, you know, or, or whatever else you can do, a comment. And uh, and if there's guests that you'd like to hear me chat to, um, drop us a line, let us know. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do that on the Patreon. You can find out about everything you need to know at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Thanks loads, lovely people. I'll see you next time. Be excellent to one another. See you soon. Bye-bye.
got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast. On the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Hey, the